1: Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And Jamie and John from True Crimecast are back. And this time they've got details on crimes committed by professional wrestlers. They're talking about a luchador serial killer named Juana Barraza, who allegedly killed 40 elderly women in the Mexico City area. And they've got details on the crimes committed by someone I worked with at WCW, Hardbody Harrison. He's currently serving life in prison for his part in a sex trafficking ring. And then there's Douglas Witten, an indie wrestler who murdered four people And they got details on the case of the rock and rebel Charles Williams, a wrestler who was trained by the Rock and Roll Express, who got signed to ECW and was then involved in a murder-suicide. I got a couple stories that aren't quite as serious as murder as well. Tell the little-known story about Ric Flair, who was actually illegally adopted. He was sold as a baby. Then there's Billy Joe Travis, who was actually arrested on live TV in Memphis, while working for Jerry Lawler, wait to hear the details on this one. We even talk about my brush with the law in Kentucky that ended up with me and Hurricane Helms spending a night in jail. So, true wrestling crimes with Jamie and John from True Crime Cast starting now on Talk Is Jericho.
2: So, uh, in the ongoing series of the uh, True Crime Cast, Talk Is Jericho Union. Jamie and John are back, and you guys always come up with cool topics and ideas, and what we came up with this time is to talk kind of about pro-wrestling crimes, but outside of the beaten path. Obviously, we've seen Dark Side of the Ring uh, talking about Bruiser Brody and, of course, the Chris Benoit tragedy, Uh, but there's a lot more kind of a dirty underbelly in pro-wrestling than just those ones. So where did you guys come up with the idea for this topic?
3: Yeah, I've always been a big wrestling fan and as much as I can bring my interests together, I try to. So we've covered the story and we've talked about that pretty openly and publicly before. We've covered a couple other small crimes and we put together kind of a catalog of these crimes committed by
2: wrestlers and thought we could put them together and come up with a good show for you. Well, I mean, absolutely, because I think one thing that people don't realize is that wrestling is such a worldwide phenomenon, which would lend itself to having more of these kind of crimes and criminals. And and we're going to discuss three or four different stories today. And like I said, ones that we might not have delved too far into before. So let's just jump right in. The original uh, idea that you came to me with was a Mexican luchador or a luchadora, shall we say, a female wrestler. Yeah, that's the case of Juana Barrezo. Juana Barrezo. Okay, so tell me about Juana Barrezo.
4: Let me kind of give you the background of her life because it is tragic. So she was born in rural Mexico in 1957. She lived a horribly tragic life. Didn't have any kind of father figure in her life. And her mom was an alcoholic. She was also a sex worker and she rarely was home. And when she was home, she was involved with You know, just all kinds of awful stuff. She didn't really provide any care for one. And dude, here's the worst part. Because of what I do for a living, I've heard of parents selling their kids for drugs. She sold this child for
3: three beers. Oh, my gosh. I think that just goes to show the lifestyle they were living where they were in a situation where that was even an option or desperate enough to make that decision.
2: Well, once again, too, it goes back to what we always discuss here on the the three or four times you've been on the show. Whenever there's some kind of a vicious killer, a serial killer, whatever it may be, it always boils down to some kind of a horrible upbringing for the most part. And this definitely fits that that cliche. Well, and here's the bad thing. Like she wasn't
4: sold to a family who was going to love her. She to basically be a sex slave. So she was in this guy's care for six years and in this home. She was impregnated multiple times, but she was never able to keep any of her babies. Oh, my God. This all happened before she was 18. Five years of this hellish nightmare went on before finally her uncles found out where she was living at. And they went in and captured uh, or, like, saved this girl from the sex slave. And uh, her mom denied that this happened, but obviously it definitely happened. So just a tragic awful upbringing and during the 80s and 90s she worked a variety of jobs her most interesting one and really what brought us to this show about it was that she became a lucho libre fighter which is a popular style of professional wrestling in mexico and she fought under the name the lady of silence because she was a shy woman she didn't like to get put herself out
2: there so that that was the name she wrestled la dama del silencio is what what it would be. And let me just kind of jump in, because when, when you're talking about Mexican wrestling, which is all basically Lucha Libre, there are so many companies in Mexico. Obviously, there's the big ones that I work for, CMLL, there's AAA, but there's so many other small little independents that there's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of luchadores. And luchadoras is what you call a female wrestler there uh, in Mexico City. So... It doesn't surprise me that if you're talking about 80s and 90s, I I lived in Mexico from 92 to 94, uh, 95 even, and I never heard of La Dama del Silencio. doesn't mean that she wasn't working four or five times a week or maybe just once a week or once a month because, like I said, there's so many luchadores there. Uh, So that would explain for anybody who's a big fan not knowing who she is because you might not have heard of her even though she could be still working very regularly in Mexico City would that have been enough to, for her to make a living if she was working regularly for one of the
3: smaller companies?
2: Well, you got to keep in mind that Mexico is a very uh, low income country to begin with. Right. So, I mean, I would see people all the time that even working for the big leagues in arena, Mexico, were working two or three times a week, but they're low, low down on the card. And what they used to do is they would give uh, payoffs a percentage of the house. So if you drew 15 people, paying, you know, 10 pesos a ticket or 20 pesos a ticket, what's 300 pesos, 400 pesos, divide that by whoever's around. She could be making 10, 15, 20 pesos for a show. If it's a big one, maybe a couple hundred pesos. So she could probably make a living off of that if you're living in Mexico City kind of in squalor. But because I haven't heard of her, tells me she was probably on the low level end of payoffs, which is not a lot. Yeah, that's what I assumed as well. And that's why
3: my first message to you was, have you ever heard this lady? And you said you hadn't. And it seems like she was not making enough money to make a living. She had just given birth to her fourth child. And then she resorted to shoplifting, first from stores, but then she started robbing homes. And it's in 1996 that she hatched a plan with a friend to start stealing from the elderly which is a targeted audience that we don't see very much. We see sex workers that are often targeted. We see children targeted, but the elderly is not usually, especially for a killer, which is what we're going to get to in a minute, a a group that they go after. So Juana and her friend would dress up in white clothes and pretend to be nurses or social workers to get inside. They're there to offer help. They say, we're here to offer rehab or uh, to make sure you're getting your checks or whatever it may be. and When they would get in the home, they would rob them blind and usually just leave. Hmm. After doing this for a while, she got into business with a corrupt police officer who would help her cover this up and actually helped her to get deeper into making money off of this. But he ultimately blackmailed her and then she went out on her own. And beginning in 2002 is when she really ramped everything up. The press would feature a pattern. But the police denied any connection between these crimes. Authorities said that this was media sensationalism, that just because seven or eight old people had died, then there was no story there, that people were trying to make it up. Maria de la Cruz gonzalez Añana was the first victim, and she was killed on November 25th, of 2002. And the killer, who we now know as Barraza, beat her and strangled the elderly woman. In 2005, police conceded that there was a serial killer that was responsible for up to 24 elderly women that were strangled to death after being robbed in their homes. That's a lot of women to target. Yeah. And, and before police are willing to come out and say, yes, this is a
2: serial killer, 24 people had died that they knew of. With all the same patterns, the demographic of being elderly women, right? So that's totally a serial killer when you have the, the, the patterns that they follow. You'd have to think that that's something they would pick up on, but it
3: wasn't until witnesses started putting together. You know, I saw this person coming from the house. I saw an individual that looked like that or whatever. And they started saying they saw a tall woman around some of the scenes, but police still insisted that this was a man. They thought a man was dressing as a woman to try to get away with this. And the police believe that after the, the murders kind of slowed down, that the killer had moved on or and, and that's the thing with serial killers. They don't just stop. So they either move to somewhere else, they die, or they go to jail. But that's when we get to the murder of 82-year-old Ana Maria de los Reyes Alfario, who was murdered in her home. And her tenant, who lived in another part of the house, actually spotted Juana Barraza, Juan Barraza leaving the house. Now, the tenant was able to find a police officer that was really close and say, That person just left my landlady's house. I know there's a serial killer around. Let's go get her. So without that witness, who knows how many people she would have gotten to kill. The investigation got even more terrifying when they got to Juana's house. They found a stethoscope that she had used to strangle people, pension forms, and a fake card identifying her as a social worker. She matched all of the reports that people said they saw outside of houses. And we talk about serial killers having trophies. She had newspaper clippings about all the murders, and she had objects taken from every home.
2: she know these women? Um, would they have been familiar with her? Is that how she gained their trust to get into their house for the first, in the first place? As far as we know, she didn't revisit any home. So
3: she didn't build any kind of relationship with them. She would just show up dressed in scrubs with a, a, an ID card as a social worker to gain their trust and say, hey, I've got some pension forms. I'm going to help you with paperwork and get the medical care you need. Gotcha. I think that's a pretty common thing. John, you're a social worker. I think she was taking advantage of old people.
4: You know, Mm -hmm. if you show up with pension forms and say, hey, we just need to do some paperwork. Most old people are going to be like, yeah, come on in. She's a young lady with a nurse outfit and a stethoscope. Like she looks harmless.
2: You know what I mean? And that's the thing, too. You would as an elderly woman, you would probably have a tendency to trust another woman more than you would some random strange man. Yeah, I think about my grandmother.
4: She's in her 80s, and I have no doubt in my mind that she would let this woman in her home. If she says, Hey, we've got some paperwork for your pension, right? My grandmother's gonna be like, Absolutely, let's take care of this. I don't wanna lose my money, <laughs> you know? Right, gotcha, gotcha.
3: Okay, so continue on. Yeah, prosecutors said that they had her fingerprints linking her to at least 10 of the murders, but they believe she could have been responsible for as many as. 40 murders of elderly women in the Mexico city area from 2002 to 2006. She confessed to the final murder because she was caught red handed outside of the crime scene, denied all the others. She was tried in the spring of 2008 and was charged with 30 out of the 40 murders. Now, John and I often talk about if there's a, a, a lot of victims and we're not charging for all of them or where. are serving the sentence concurrently, meaning all the sentences are at the same time or consecutively, who are we getting justice for and who are we not? It's often pretty hard to tease out. And she was ultimately only found guilty on 12 charges of murder, 16 charges of murder and 12 charges of robbery. And she was sentenced to 100 years in prison. And she's supposed to be out on parole in 2058. She would be 101 years old when she gets out.
2: Even though she was sentenced to 759 years, is one report, are you saying the, the, the sentences are running concurrently, so that only equals 100? Yeah, so
3: the concurrent sentence, they're all running at the same time. So she's oh gosh. found guilty for 16 murders. So she's serving one year counts for 16 years of the sentence because of gotcha. the way that those sentences run. And the logic behind that is that that year she's paying for all 16 crimes as opposed to them running back to back. If she dies after four of them, then she didn't pay for the other crimes, which I would rather her be in jail for 700 years or until she dies than see her running these concurrently.
2: Well, I mean, if she's if concurrently, it's oh, still over 100, I think we'll be OK, right?
3: Yeah, I don't I don't think she's getting out. And her life as a wrestler doesn't uh, seem to veer too much into her murders, except it was said that she used some of the holds she was familiar with to get in the right position and to choke these women out and to strangle them. And you have to think that she had some bit of strength to her to compete as a wrestler. So these elderly women did not have much of a chance.
2: Well, I mean, it's one of those things when you, when you talk about something like you know, a sleeper hold and you can, oh, it's a sleeper hold. I mean, you actually, we used to do, do it all the time as a bouncer. If you caught somebody kind of in a front face lock and, and, and put their chin to their chest and really squeeze down, you could cause someone to lose consciousness. Same thing with a sleeper hold. Same thing with a lot of the, the resting holds. If you really put them on strongly, of course, it can, it can cut the, the wind off or, you know, impede your windpipe, especially when we're talking here, like you mentioned, old ladies, grandmas. It's not going to take much to put out an old lady uh, in a sleeper hold, for example.
3: It's really not. And she, especially, she was using a stethoscope or whether she was using her hands. She was definitely leaving behind fingerprints. But when you kill somebody without an actual murder weapon, even though she did use the
2: stethoscope, it can be harder sometimes to tie that back to the actual perpetrator. Sure. That makes sense. There's something else interesting here as I'm just kind of following along, uh, looking at some different research. There's conflicting evidence. At one point, the police hypothesized that two killers might be involved. And another coincidence that distracted the investigation and let police down a different road was that at least three of Barraza's victims owned a print of an 18th century painting by French artist Jean-Baptiste Greuze, the boy in a red wa- waistcoat. So they were probably looking for patterns and were looking for this boy in the red waistcoat. Uh, so maybe they thought those three murders were done by the same guy and the rest of them were not because there was no three waistcoat uh, boy in the red waistcoat pictures there. To me, it's just
3: an amazing coincidence that allowed right Juana uh, Baraza to continue to get away with it because they didn't tie those together, and that may have been why they were more more hesitant to say it was a serial killer. But that's such a crazy coincidence. I can't imagine there are a ton of people with the same prints
2: like that. Well, and that may be something like that. I mean, would would if I was a CSI serial killer detective? That's probably the first thing you look for, I would imagine, right, is the patterns that you see. So that coincidence might have took them down the wrong road to where other people got murdered as a result. Yeah, I think you have to start with the commonalities.
3: What are we seeing here in these crimes? What is common to lead us back to what other people could be linked to that commonality? And we know Juana Barraza worked a lot of jobs, but we don't know that she would have worked any jobs that would have let her in on the local art scene or what kind of prints were being traded.
2: Well, there you go. La Dama del Silencio. And if you look her up here, her uh, her mask is like a butterfly. And, and we'll post that so you can see it. But she's not, uh, shall we say, a fetching woman uh, <laughs> at all. So like I mentioned here, it's a, definitely a, a, an interesting case. And I had not heard of her before, but she became much more famous from her murders than she ever had from her wrestling uh, achievements. Great start, but you guys mentioned you have some other crimes and criminals in the business that we might not know a lot about. Who's next? All right. I'm sure you guys are more familiar with this. Hard Body Harrison. Yes. You guys familiar with Hard Body? Of course. I used to wrestle in WCW with Hardbody Harrison. And for those who might not remember the name, he was the guy that wore like the Florence Griffith Joyner tights of one long tight and one short tight, if you guys remember those. That's fantastic. <laughs> Did you wrestle against him at all? So I never had a match with Hardbody. So I can give you a little bit of a background. Hardbody, I know. I know. Obviously, he had a lot of crimes that we'll discuss. But he was a guy that I remember being backstage waiting to go to the ring for my match against Mike Rotundo in MGM Studios in, in Orlando. We were filming. It was called WCW Worldwide, and Hardbody Harrison was supposed to wrestle Alex Wright, and they were arguing over who was going to be the heel. Heel's obviously the bad guy. Babyface is the good guy. And Hardbody Harrison had this, like, a bar that you use to warm up. But it's like an accordion in the middle, like Hulk Hogan used to use it in the 80s, like a pump-up bar. Yeah. And they're arguing, like, I'm the heel. No, I'm the heel. And Alex is German, so he has I no, I'm the heel. No, I'm the heel, man. No, I'm the heel. And <laughs> Alex took this pump-up bar from Hardbody and hit him over the head with it, and they got into a fight. And right as the fight was going, my ring music was playing. And I had to go to the ring and I never got to see the end of the fight. And I remember Rotunda was like, this fight's a lot better than our match is going to be. We should just watch the fight. <laughs> he was kind of a, of a little bit of a, of a hothead, shall we say. And he was constantly pitching ideas where he wanted to be the Black Sting and call himself Stang, S-T-A-N-G. And he would pitch all these ridiculous storylines where, where DDP had the diamond crystals and he would steal the diamond crystals this is true. Put them in a tank of piranhas to protect the diamond crystals. And then DDP and hard body would have to have a match or DDP and Stang would have to have a match to where you'd put somebody's head in the piranhas to get the diamond crystals. So he was a little bit, uh, out there, shall we say? So that's the background of what I know about hard body Harrison. Now tell us what kind of went on with them maybe during his WCW career or afterwards. Well, on August 18th, 2005,
4: 2005- Hard body Harrison was arrested for keeping eight women locked up as sex slaves. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, we just talked about Barraza who was sold as a sex slave. And now we have this guy who is kind of on the other end of the table. So yeah, like you said, he was working for the WCW, but he would lure women in with the promise of helping them financially. He would help them find housing. And then he would trap them in one of the two homes that he owned in Cartersville and he would force the women to have sex with clients for money. And if they didn't comply, then he would brutally beat them and threaten their lives. So he was basically
2: a pimp, but using these women as
4: sex slaves.
2: So literally holding them hostage while they were working for him as a pimp. But, but, but then when they were not working, they'd be living in his house kind of in a, in a prison atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah,
3: this is more like sex trafficking back before we had the word for it, probably. Yep. Yeah. You
2: know, it's, it's interesting here before you continue on, I'm just reading some of your notes. First of all, I love this line that Harrison was a WCW jobber who would get his ass kicked day in and day out in the ring. <laughs> yeah. But you guys have an interesting question here about, uh, about the life of, of people who constantly lose the business. And does that weigh on them mentally to get beat every single time? And maybe that leads to his like you said, his, his desire to have to dominate. But, you know, I think there's some guys in the wrestling business that understand their place. And it was a lot more prevalent back then in WCW or in WWE, WWF at the time, when you were hired to be a jobber, you know, an enhancement talent is the much more politically correct word. But there's other guys, too, that are brought in that probably have higher expectations. And we know Harbody did because he had all these plans and ideas. So to lose all the time probably does weigh on you. And I even remember, I think he even took a backdrop into a swimming pool once when we used to work in Panama City at Club La Vila. So he's low, low level, you know, that could contribute if you have bigger dreams and bigger hopes, maybe because he did lose all the time. He started thinking, well, you know, I'm going to start dominating some, some people myself here since I'm the one who's always being dominated in my job.
3: Yeah. And I, I mean, I can recall people who made a, I mean, Barry Horowitz made a career. Absolutely. Like he's yeah. I remember his name. I don't know that he ever won a match. So there are some people, you're right, that really embraced it. But even the stories that you're sharing about Hardbody Harrison, he obviously had some control issues where he felt like he needed to have a voice in what was happening or he needed to have some level of control. And
2: when he kidnapped these women, that was a way to exercise that. Well, exactly. Let's continue on. So what other things was he doing? These heinous crimes that he was committing? Yeah, I mean, that was really the the gist of it. It was just awful crimes. But thankfully, he
4: was arrested when one of the women was able to get outside of the house and approach the police officer on the street. He was able to tell him what was going on and what was happening to the other ladies. So he was arrested. He faced multiple counts of forced labor, aggravated sexual abuse, sex trafficking, witness tampering, and conspiracy. So he's in jail. He's being charged. He's facing life in prison. And the dude actually decided to represent himself on the stand. I don't know this guy. I mean, obviously, he's not a great dude, but this is a really bad decision. If you're facing life in prison, I need somebody a lot smarter than myself to represent me in in this trial. You know what I mean?
3: Well, it sounds like he had a lot of confidence and felt like he was a very intelligent individual with a lot of great ideas. So based on what we know, this isn't surprising. But anytime we cover a case where somebody represents themselves, we kind of know where it's going to end up. How did it end up? Yeah, he was. Uh, Jamie, do you remember what happened? To him? Yeah, he was given a full life sentence without the possibility of parole. Yeah. He's still in prison for these crimes. Thankfully, he has no parole. They said, obviously. So he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison, which is more than we can say for Juana Barraza, Technically, even though she likely will. We know that hard body Harrison's really never going to get out of prison. Now we're going to talk in a minute about some folks on the independent circuit. At least Hardbody Harrison made it to a, a promotion like WCW.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to keepitfunohio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
2: Let me ask you a couple questions here, and I think we've talked about this quite a few times, and besides just the fairness issue of it, per se, why would Juana Barasa get 796 years, and that's just lip service, you know, 100 years, whatever, for 60 murders, and Hardbody Harrison, who's committing a terrible act, but he's getting a life sentence uh, for imprisoning girls. What's the mindset there? Like, why not just give Juana a life sentence as well and leave it at that? Is this kind of some kind of a vengeance thing that you're going to get all of this time? Like, what's the difference? 750 years is your life anyways. Yeah, it's just the political systems.
3: We cover cases from all over the world. And in places like uh, Canada and Australia, people can't spend more than 25 years in prison without a parole hearing. So they're not even going to give somebody a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Gotcha. They may never get parole. They may get 100 years and never be paroled, but they're going to be at least assessed for parole after 25 years. And in Mexico, it at the time, their judicial system was set up in such a way that we're just going to give you a million bajillion years and see how it works out. See how it goes. Yeah, exactly. And even some of that goes state by state. And here in America, there are some with harsher sentences that are allowed and others that are not.
4: We just covered a case out of Tennessee where a guy raped a, a minor and was given a 99-year sentence. So you would assume he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. He was out on parole after 12 years. And then went on to kill another minor in another state. I feel like a lot of times what we give, like the punishment is arbitrary. You could get a hundred years, but you're out after serving a 10th of that. Our justice system's a little weird. (laughs) It's broken.
2: You know, it's interesting too, is that just kind of once again, doing some reading up here. When he had these women imprisoned in his house, it was under the auspices of training them as professional wrestlers. Uh, is what is what is looking here and so they they would show up and Harrison would then basically groom them uh, force them to have sex with him participate in large sex orgies involving up to eight men at a time that like you said they were as they were as prostitutes but also put them through a rigid training regimen of exercises and household chores and also had them memorize a series of commandments that was designed to make them more effective and attractive prostitutes. It sounds much
3: more like a cult than a sex trafficking ring, the more you dig into it, doesn't it?
2: Exactly, and then it said failure to complete chores. Because I remember this, that's why I looked it up, I remember hearing about this. Failure to complete chores or breaking the rules required the women to pay money to him, creating a never-ending debt cycle. So he always had control because they always owed him money for their transgressions during training, shall we say. Yeah, it's such a horrible story. And I can't imagine the type of mental
3: manipulation that you have over folks to keep them in that cycle. Yeah. Thankfully, one of the individuals was able to get out and speak out about to escape and do it. Yeah. But obviously he's keeping them in good shape to make them attractive for other people to pay to, to have sex with them. And to, I guess, in the back of their mind, gaslight them a little bit into thinking they still have a potential
2: career. Well, yeah. And and the last thing I'll say, and we can move on, is that he was also a Gulf War Army veteran. So he had that military sense to him as well, which could explain a lot of this regimentation that he had.
3: Right. I I guarantee that a lot of his MO came from from that background or that need for that type of regimen. So so we're going to move into some independent circuits. And I, I know that most people do pay their dues in that way. How is that different and what kind of individuals would you say you interacted with on the independent circuit as opposed to the the bigger promotions that you've worked
2: for the last 30 40 years well everybody you know if you're going to start wrestling you got to start in the independent and that's kind of really uh where you weed out the pretenders you know what i'm saying like obviously i haven't wrestled independently for 30 odd years. But from, I remember from my time is that you'd get the guys who were like, Oh, I wasn't going to be a wrestler. Yeah. I'm a wrestler. I've been wrestling for 20 years. And meanwhile, they've had, you know, 10 matches in those 20 years or, you know, 10 matches a year in that time frame, Right. So they're kind of the weekend warriors and some guys just aren't good enough. But when you're on the independent scene, if you need some bodies on the show, you'll pretty much book anybody. Cause once again, like we talked earlier about Juana Barraza, is that you're not making big bucks when you're on the independence. It's not like you're getting paid, you know, 500 bucks a show or something along those lines, unless you've made a big name for yourself and you come back. But when you're up the ranks, I mean, you're making 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 90 bucks, 100 bucks. There's really no rhyme or reason to it. So that really, more than anything, lets you know if somebody really wants it or not, because you're not getting rich in being an independent wrestler. And a lot of times you're not even wrestling in front of a lot of people. So it's a real kind of training ground for those that really want it. And a weeding out ground for those that think it's going to be easy that want to become famous pro wrestlers. Right. And I think that's what happened to a guy named Douglas
3: Witten going back to 1997. He had been traveling the independent circuit. Things were not going well for him. He ended up in a substance abuse center for an alcohol addiction. He ended up checking himself out early, and he went to meet with a family of a man named Owen Reeves, that was working at a church. Now this Christian family ended up taking Douglas in out of the kindness of their hearts. They wanted to support his dream of getting back out there in wrestling and they wanted to give him a safe place to stay. However, within just a few months, Douglas Witten went on to murder Owen, who was his wife, their 9-year-old son and one of his roommates in what was described as just a rampage of insanity. He essentially snapped. He was arrested on October 17th of 1997 by police uh, who worked with the girlfriend of one of his friends to get him to come in and admit to this crime after they discovered the bodies, just a few days after they were killed. He confessed to police said he may have killed the family while he was blacked out and pleaded innocent to the charges on those grounds and tried to plead insanity, which we see pretty often, but on February 26th of 1999, Douglas Witten was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Again, there's that sentence. And he was never to be seen again. But a lot of his alcohol issues were attributed to the fact that he, he was chasing this dream and he wasn't making any traction. And I think that can be the case in absolutely any profession where somebody's trying to climb the ladder and just not getting anywhere. But this is an individual who... Really didn't give himself a chance before he finally snapped and, and kind of lost it. And I know there are plenty of stories about people out on the road. Is it more stressful? Well, I guess if you're making less money and traveling more often and really grinding on the independent, then
2: it's a harder life, right? Well, once again, just a couple of the bits of details is that he killed this family and these people by, by stabbing them with a knife and beating them with A rock. A rock. Yeah, beating them with a rock, bludgeoning and stabbing deaths, but the bludgeoning is the rock. I mean, like you mentioned, a recovering alcoholic and a self-professed professional wrestler. Now, once again, I know almost everything about wrestling as far as who's out there, who's around, but I don't know anything about the lowest level of guys. Right. And Douglas Witten, it looks like he's from the New Orleans area. Never heard this guy's name in my life. And he committed the murders in 1997. So it's not like it is now where you have a lot of buzz about hot young upstarts online. This guy was probably the lowest of low-level wrestlers and probably one of those guys, like I told you, who does, oh, I've been wrestling for 10 years. How many matches have you had? Seven? Yeah, it doesn't count. Yeah. You know, if, you've been, if you started wrestling in 1990 and it's now 1997, you've had 10 matches, that does not make you a professional wrestler. So I, I don't even think I could even tell you about road stories for him because I would assume there probably wasn't a lot of road stories. It was probably, like you said, he's saying he's a wrestler because he's had three or four matches in the area, whoever will use him. And it's always a good excuse to say that uh, it was the wrestling business that took you astray, but I know hundreds of wrestlers and no one has ever really killed anybody with a rock before.
3: No, I completely agree. And I I think it's kind of the – he was probably – predisposed to the alcoholism and, and in whatever career he had chosen, if he wasn't being successful, I think, uh, my, my wife does a lot of studying of child psychology and her work and, and her note is that usually, and I think I mentioned this on another episode with you, Chris, that nature loads the gun and then nurture pulls the trigger. I think he was kind of predisposed to be this type of person and his lack of success
2: in whatever field led him down that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and once again, I don't even know if we could even really use him in the pro wrestling category, but he did have a match. So there you go. That's probably his uh, claim to fame in, in his lifelong prison sentence. Yeah, he's probably telling those stories in prison about being a wrestler.
3: And I know we have there are several local promotions here, even in rural Kentucky, of folks that all have a show at the Armory twice a year, <laughs> the National Guard Armory, and they claim to be wrestlers as well. So I totally get that.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's kind of just the, the, like, I always think back, like I said, to the guys who, you know, I remember the one guy that I first met, Lance Storm and I, when we were training and his name was Bob Puppets and that was his real name, Bob Puppets. And he showed up and uh, our trainer's was like, yeah, he's a big promoter. And I was like, oh, this could be our chance. And we're training in Calgary. And I'm like, he's a big promoter. Like, where do you promote? And I'm thinking he's going to say like New York or Vancouver or Toronto or Edmonton. He's like, Innisfail. Like Innisfail, what is that? It's a farm town of about 350 people. But he was the big promoter in Innisfail, so you're going to get your big chance in Innisfail, buddy. Yeah,
3: you're going to have to wrestle everybody in town on the same it, night. Have exactly. one big
1: town, town rumble. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: All right. Who do you got next?
4: All right. So the last of our wrestlers is uh, actually connected to a tag team that Jamie is really fond of. And that is the tag team called Rock and Roll Express. Jamie, do you want to tell the story?
3: Yeah, my first celebrity high five, Chris, I was at K. Wood high School in Harlan, Kentucky. Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson. My first high five on their way out to the ring. <laughs> Never forget it. It was a huge moment for me. So, they were a great
4: tag team. They're still wrestling, but they went on to train a lot of future stars. And one of those was up-and-comer they trained in the 80s, Charles Williams, whose ring name was Rockin' Rebel. So, are you familiar with him, Chris? Yeah, I don't think I ever met him, but I am familiar with the name for sure. So, Williams hailed from Westchester, Pennsylvania. He wrestled for a number of promotions. He was primarily used to put popular wrestlers over before getting what he thought would be his big break in a contract with Extreme Championship Wrestling in nineteen ninety three. So ECW was a pretty big get and Rockin' Rebels dues were finally paying off. He's get a, he's got his first contract. Do you remember what that was like to get your first contract?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean it's one of the one of the greatest moments of your career, especially when you've been, you know, toiling is, is I think my first I got some contracts in Mexico and, and, and in Japan, but actual big league contract was nine years in for with WCW. So, yeah, it's a big moment for sure. So one of the
4: biggest stories about Rock and Rebel were that he had the idea to bring Paul Heyman in as a top promoter for the ECW, which did a lot for that promotion as well as the wrestling as a whole. And things were not easy for Williams when he did make it to ECW. So there's an example detailing this. He was told that he would be winning a battle royal match and only to find out that this was a practical joke as all the other wrestlers attacked him and threw him over the top rope to start the match, eliminating him from contention. Have you ever seen anything like this before where you're told one thing,
2: something totally different happens that you're not expecting? Well, I, that's, once again, that's kind of a low-level thing that would happen sometimes where guys would we would say, go into business for yourself, you know, change the finish or, or, or do something you're not supposed to do. But it's a pretty dumb thing because if you ever do that, then the promoter will probably not invite you back. Uh, you get a reputation for it. So it's a Bush League attitude to have. And most of the guys that do that sort of thing uh, don't last very long. So the franchise,
4: Shane Douglas would say that Williams, he wasn't the kind of guy that you would want to let your hair down with. You'd be talking about one thing, he would say a few things about it, and then he was on his way. He was just an overly intense guy and just the kind of guy that he would scream about a parking spot kind of guy. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, this intensity
2: was and just to just to go back to what you're saying too about the other thing like I, I gave the other extreme the one that you were talking about is yeah they would do stuff like that if they didn't like somebody they would pull a rib on you is what we what we call it and that's when you know you're going you're going to win in the battle royal and then everyone throws you out so imagine how the guy's going to be fighting when he thinks he's supposed to win you know usually if you're if you're in a battle royal and someone's going to throw you out you go with it but if you think oh I'm supposed to win I'm supposed to win it's just going to cause a big issue and a big brouhaha and you're basically just ribbing yourself. But that's kind of, it comes from a malicious side of things. And I think that's what this was here with Rock and Rebel. It
3: seemed like he was somebody that wasn't well-liked. And that's what Shane Douglas was saying here. And we have some more quotes too.
4: Yeah, apparently he just, he did a lot of things that were not good. We know in his marriage, he did some time in jail in the 90s for holding his wife hostage in a closet with a firearm to her head. His family talked her into not pressing charges. And she would try to leave him, but he would always threaten to kill himself. The one time that she did try to leave, he he called her, at her mom's. You know, just guy had a violent past. He was unhealthy in his behaviors, and this would continue until it reached a focal point in 2018, and that's really the crux of this story. So, well,
2: before that, though, you kind of left out. The, t- let's talk about these comments that you have here from Sean Waltman from X Pac. Yeah,
4: he would say that Chuck wasn't a good guy at all. Stephanie lived in fear of her life all the time. And that's because, like I said, he locked her in a closet, put a gun
3: against her head, yeah. threatened to kill her and himself if she left. And so. that's corroborated by what Shane Douglas said. And there were others, too. I mean, everybody kind of had the same vibe about this guy. They felt like he was dangerous, a danger to his family, a danger to his coworkers. And it sounds like he wasn't well liked, which, again, I think goes back to them ripping him in that battle royal.
2: Yeah. And, and that's the thing, once again, I mean, if there's something that people feel is off, they'll try and drive you out of the business by doing these, these ribs, like I said, these, these tricks upon you to make you second guess why you even want to be there in the first place. So
4: on May 29th, 2018, he posted a picture, a family photo on social media of himself, his wife, Stephanie, and then their 10-year-old children, which was a boy and a girl, and that post read days of spending time with the ones you love and you love them are few and far between. So make them count. Hmm. So three days after that post, the West Goshen Township police department were called to Williams home in West Goshen Township, Pennsylvania. And there they discovered the bodies of both Stephanie and Charles, both deceased, both from gunshot wounds to the head. It was obvious from the start of this investigation that Charles had shot his wife, before turning the gun on himself. I mean, this is awful and terrible, but I think the saddest thing is that the bodies were discovered by their 10-year-old children. Hmm. That's something that they're never going to forget. We've talked about CTE before, I think, on the show, and William's brain was actually donated to science to help study CTE, and I hope that something is is used or helpful out of everything that happened with him yeah this incident was
3: 20 years or so after he had gotten out of the wrestling business but his time during the business and we see this most notably with football players who go on after they retire to commit some kind of crime or to suffer some kind of deep depression but i think the more we find out about cte the more we see that those head injuries at a younger age make a big contribution
2: well, and that's the thing. I mean, I think CTE is such a, I mean, I'd never heard about it before until the Chris Benoit tragedy, you know, and there's some NFL players. I know junior sale was, was the guy that comes to mind that I think killed himself uh, with, with the CTE issues. Yeah. It's very early on in what CTE is. So, and we don't know what the human brain can take, what it can't take, but he was wrestling uh, rock and rebel and, you know, when when these things happen kind of outside of the, of the norm, you got to wonder if that sort of brain injury, a long-term brain injury can affect you at any point in your life. Absolutely.
3: Even though it was 20 years after he got out of wrestling, (laughs) again, going back to the nature nurture, obviously he was always an intense, violent person. So as the brain continues to deal with that, I think it's uh, just gets more, more and more likely every day that somebody's uh, going to be in position to hurt themselves or others. Junior Seau, I think Steve McNair was involved in a situation as well. They didn't do it immediately after retirement. It was after years of being away from the game. Your life has changed. You're not living that high of being involved in in wrestling or football or whatever it may be. So it's dealing psychologically with the physical change of the brain as well.
1: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: Well, there's a, a few other uh, wrestling arrests that I wanted to bring up that are kind of nowhere. A little bit more humorous, this one at least. Uh, I actually, I will leave with that one. But it's actually, did you guys know... That we talk about Juana being sold for three beers, but it's common knowledge that Ric Flair was sold on the black market as a baby. I did not know that. I had no idea. Unbelievable, right? He was born in Memphis in 1949, the same time and place that a woman named Georgia Tan was running one of the largest child trafficking operations in U.S. history. Uh, She operated the Tennessee Children's Home Society, an orphanage adoption agency, which was really a front For her to sell babies to wealthy out-of-state couples, she bribed nurses and doctors to turn newborn over to her, her, tell the parents they were stillborn. And other times she played the role once again of a helpful social worker trying to remove children from a bad environment. And she was finally arrested, but it was estimated that the Tennessee Children's Home Society had stole over 5,000 babies. 5,000 kids going missing. Going missing. Or, or presumed to be dead, which is even worse. Yeah, yeah. And Flair was adopted on March 18th, 1949, shortly before the adoption agency was closed for good. His real name was most likely Fred Phillips. Seeing as how the agency destroyed or manufactured most documents, it's unlikely that the Nature Board will ever find out what happened to his real biological parents. So there's a little bit of a t- trivia for you there. That was going to be my next question of if he was ever uh, connected back
3: to his initial birth family. I've heard of stories like that, but didn't know that he was involved. Fred Phillips is definitely less marketable than Richard Fleer.
2: <laughs> yeah, Fred, Freddie Phillips. The nature boy. Yeah. The Freddie Phillips nature boy. But another great one that I always, I, I, I've heard this before. This was back in 1997. Wrestler called Billy Joe Travis was arre- arrested once again in Memphis for unpaid child support during live TV. I have read that story. That's
3: incredible.
2: Yeah. So Memphis was a place where they'd have live TV every Saturday morning for years and years and years. This is of course, uh, Jerry, the King Lawler's company that's been running since the seventies and Saturday morning Memphis television, maybe up until the last 10, 15 years was always the highest rated show in the market. Like people would watch Saturday mornings In massive amounts. They would do, I don't know, a 10 or 13 or 15 market share. Incredible. So the officers showed up at TV and wanted to arrest Travis. And Lawler convinced them to wait until he was doing his interview on live TV.
3: That's so he convinced them to wait until it would be very public and draw attention.
2: Exactly. So old school Carney, right? So he's doing his interview. Cops come and arrest him for the unpaid child support. But then they turn into a story where Billy Joe Travis, who was the babyface, blames it on Brian Christopher, who was the heel, in the fight. And so the the the, the intrepid babyface was set up by the vicious heel. <laughs> that <laughs> is
4: fantastic. <laughs> Nothing like some baby mama drama on live TV
2: to really spice things up a little bit. Exactly, exactly. And one last story, because I'll probably never talk about this again. there would be no reason to, is the night that I was arrested in uh, Kentucky. And I was arrested for the uh, horrible crime of public intoxication. Well, now if you're ever in Kentucky, we could just bail you out, man. I mean, it's all good now. You have to come get me. But it was it was right over the border with uh, Cincinnati. You know, Cincinnati is technically in Kentucky, but it's, it's Ohio as well. Right. And we had a show and we were having some drinks after the show. And Hurricane Helms lost. He got really angry at me and punched me in the face while we were in the back of a car, of a taxi. And the taxi pulled over on the side of the road and said, get out. I'm not having a fight on the side of the road. So we got out and kind of got in a little bit of a brouhaha. And then the cops pulled up, arrested the both of us for uh, public intoxication and took us to jail where we signed autographs and took pictures (laughs) and then uh, got bailed out in the morning. The horrible fine for public intoxication, you want to know how much it, how much it is? Fifty bucks, twenty five bucks for a night in jail.
3: I heard a comedy bit about somebody being arrested uh, for public intoxication. It's like they arrested me for being drunk in public. I was in a car, and then you sent me into public. I was drunk <laughs> yeah, in a car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was
2: fine. I was fine in a taxi, exactly. So uh, a little bit, a little bit uh, more of a levity situation rather than La Dama del Silencia. Yeah. But uh, once again, you know, it's very interesting to hear all these different crimes that you guys are able to dig up. You've always got great topics and great subjects. And uh, I'm sure when you guys come up with something else, we'll be, we'll be doing another episode again very, very soon. No, it's always a great time, Chris. We appreciate you having us. All right, guys. Think of some more topics and send them over. we Will do. Thank you. All right. Cheers, guys. Thanks. See you, man.